What's going on, everybody? My name is Jordan. I am one of the pastors here at Renaissance, and uh, really grateful to be with all of you guys today. Uh, there's a scripture in the Gospel of Matthew where Jesus challenges people who come to him to do something. It's to take the words that he's saying and put them into practice in our lives. It comes from the Gospel of Matthew, verses, uh, chapter, 7th chapter, and verses 24 through 27. Here's what Jesus says, Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain fell, the rivers rose, and the winds blew and pounded that house. Yet it didn't collapse because its foundation was on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and doesn't act on them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain fell, the rivers rose, and the winds blew and pounded that house, and it collapsed. It collapsed with a great crash. Now, in this scripture, Jesus is saying that to hear the words that he gives us and to put them into practice are, is wisdom. One of the things I've known over the years as both a Christian and felt this personally, but also certainly as a pastor, is if Jesus is calling me to take his words and put them into practice, what do I do with my doubts? What do I do with the doubts that I have, and specifically, the doubts that these words that Jesus gives me are actually reliable, that I can take them and I can put them into practice? One of the things that is kind of funny to me as a pastor is I think that because I'm a pastor, people just assume that I wake up in the morning and I start to meditate on Scripture, and um, I'm not a flexible person, so that kind of hurt just now. Um, <clears throat> But I, I, that I've never had periods where I've, I've doubted whether or not the Bible is actually reliable. And by reliable, I mean whether or not the, the books that we have downloaded on our phone, the apps and the Bibles that we have in, in our house, whether they are trustworthy, whether they're the actual words that God gives to us, and whether or not they are reliable. So in this series on the God who speaks, one of the things that we knew we had to talk about is that God speaks to us, and he speaks to us reliably. Now, I know that's the answer that a pastor should say, but there have been seasons in my life, uh, two specifically, where I really had sincere doubts about whether or not I can lean all of the weight of my life on Scripture. The first came when I was in seminary, and uh, when I first was applying to seminaries, I didn't know that there was a difference in seminaries. I thought that all of them had professors who believed in the Bible, who were practicing Christians in their churches, and who were trying to train people to be better pastors and church leaders uh, in our churches. What I quickly realized was that my school was not one of those schools. Uh, I had professors who in no way believed in the Bible or would never call themselves Christians. They were interested in Christianity the same way you would be interested in the Great Depression or something like that. It was just a historical period with ancient texts, and they read them, and they were very fascinated by them, and they became experts in it. And I remember the first day sitting in my New Testament, uh, my New Testament literature class, and I knew my professor did not believe in the Bible, or certainly not the way that I believed in it, and I remember just being really nervous. I think my fear was that all of these years, pastors and preachers had been on stages talking to me about the Bible, but they were kind of like hiding some stuff that, if it were uncovered, would completely shake my faith. 
I don't know if you've ever felt that fear, like it's the fear of the other shoe not wanting, uh, not waiting for the other shoe to drop, or that you don't really feel super confident that you can have a, a real uh, conversation with someone about Scripture out of fear that someone will pull out something that you've just never heard of and it would demolish your faith in the text. And I remember sitting in class and just being really nervous and um, thinking that eventually she was going to pull out something that was going to be like, you know, Mike Tyson's uppercut. Over the course of the semester, uh, I kept waiting for that hit, and I kept waiting for something to come out that was really going to rock me to the core of my faith. And every article and every book that we had to read, I remember distinctly sitting in class one day and like laughing to myself under my breath, like, yo, that's, that's it? That's the hit? It felt like my three-year-old when he gets mad that he doesn't want to do bath time, when he gets mad and he hits me in my leg. It was a hit, but it didn't register any real weight. Over the years, I have become increasingly, significantly more bold and more courageous and more trusting of the reliability of Scripture because I spent four years in a school of people trying to deconstruct it, and their best shot was not really a shot at all. There is no gotcha card that's waiting out there for you that will completely deconstruct your faith. Now, the second thing that really made me really question whether or not I can trust in the reliability of Scripture were periods in my life where life just hit hard, when life was, was difficult, where it was difficult to get out of bed. One of those seasons in, in, in life. And all my life, I had heard scriptures where it said things like, God will never leave you nor forsake you, and things that I wanted to believe in, things that I wanted to trust, but in complete honesty, it felt like God dipped out on me a long time ago. One of the more difficult seasons in life um, uh, really produced some things in me that I didn't think was going to happen, and one of those things was I really started to doubt, is this book that I call the Bible, is this book that I thought to be true, is this thing really real? And there's nothing like difficult and unexplainable circumstances that will push you to the point to reevaluate everything you thought you believed. Now, a couple of disclaimers uh, before we get into today. Um, the first one is I really do want to be sympathetic to anyone in here who has had genuine questions about the Bible, about Scripture, and you encountered someone who just shut you down. You had a question. Maybe you were young, and maybe it was someone in your church, maybe it was a pastor, and they ridiculed you or uh, made it a point to really push you down because you had real, legit, sincere questions. And maybe that actually kept you away from church for a long time. My goal today is, to not, is definitely not to belittle anyone. Um, at no point today are we going to uh, clown anyone for having doubts. I believe that Jesus is gracious to doubters. The people who follow Jesus the most closely had doubts. There's a, a disciple named Thomas, where Thomas is known as a doubt, doubting Thomas, which I think is a little bit unfair of a name, where he says to the other disciples, listen, unless I see the nail prints in his hands, I'm not going to believe. Jesus approaches him with grace, and he wants him to believe, and the same Jesus that approaches Thomas will come to you and to me. The second disclaimer I have is, as much, hopefully, good stuff that I have to talk about today, it's impossible for me or for anyone to convince you beyond a shadow of a doubt that the Bible is 100% accurate. It's not my goal. That's an unrealistic standard for me to try to, to hit. My goal is to not push you to 100%. My goal is actually to push you to like 73%. Because you and I can only reason ourselves to probability. 
we have to commit our way to certainty. In anything in life, you can reason your way to probability on something, that it's probably true, but in reality, in order for you to know that it's really, really true, you have to commit, your, you have to, commit to it. I remember one year when I was growing up, it was brutally cold for the whole winter, and it felt like every single day it was in the teens for like a month. And there's a lake near my house that froze. And people wanted to go ice skating on the lake. I don't ice skate because I'm a G, you know what I'm saying? And, um, but I did want to walk across the lake. And they had engineers doing reports. They had different people um, saying that the, the lake was safe for people to ice skate, to walk on. But what really made everybody know that the lake was safe was when they drove a garbage truck on it. And this 20-ton garbage truck stayed on that lake, and it was there, and it was fine. You can reason your way to probability that it's probably true, but you have to commit your way and you have to test it in real-world circumstances to know for certain that it's trustworthy. Now, if you wanted to, to determine the reliability of anything, you need to do three things. And this is with anything in life. Um, the first is you need to examine the credibility of the witnesses. Who is it that is presenting this information to be true? With anything in life. If you want to know whether or not something is trustworthy and reliable, the first question before we get to the actual content is, who are the people that are presenting these things to be factual? The second thing is you and I need to examine the integrity of the documents. Is what's being presented to us, is it logical? And can it withstand and can it stand against criticism? And lastly, just like that garbage truck, we need to put it into practice and test it. You and I can reason ourselves to probability, but we have to commit ourselves to certainty. Now, for the rest of today, I want to talk to you guys about the credibility and the reliability of, of Scripture. And the most important thing that I want to start with is the actual credibility of the witnesses that wrote the Bible. What was their motivation? Now, I practiced law for a number of years, and I remember whenever I would have a, a case like juvenile delinquency, Whenever there was someone who was testifying against my client, before we got into what they were saying, I wanted to know why they were saying it. Are you giving this testimony because it's keeping you out of jail? How believable is that? Oftentimes, prosecutors and other people will ask, uh, why are you giving this testimony? Are you receiving anything in exchange for this testimony today? And if they say yes, you have to consider that with how believable they truly are. Now, the opposite is also true, that if a person is not saying something to gain something from their testimony, but if they're actually losing by giving this testimony, then it makes it that much more credible. Years ago, I had a, a lawsuit where um, my client was driving in a car, and she was driving straight, and she claimed that she got hit by someone who ran a red light and went to the intersection and hit her car. I got to the deposition to talk to the defendant in the case, and I asked her what happened. And to be perfectly honest, maybe I'm too cynical, but I just expect everybody to lie. And uh, she sat and she says, well, I ran a red light. The light was yellow at first, and then I thought I could beat it, and I didn't. And it turned red, and then I hit the other person. And I was like, all right, so no more questions. I didn't need a police report. I didn't need camera footage from the intersection. All I needed was the testimony of the person who was testifying to something against her own interests. 
By saying this, her insurance rates for sure were going to go through the roof. She was risking her own personal property that she owned because if we were to sue her, and we did, and we were to win, and if it went above what her insurance was, her personal property, her businesses would be in jeopardy. Now, why would anyone lie to put themselves in trouble? The answer is no one would. We won that case because whenever someone is testifying to something that is against their interests, it should raise something in your mind that these people are probably telling the truth and they're credible as witnesses. Now, when you look at the people who wrote the Bible, these were people who quite literally risked and gave their life and their limb because they were saying something happened. That this dude Jesus was alive, he was crucified, and he was resurrected, and they risked their life to say these things. The author John, who wrote the Gospel of John and the book of Revelation, uh, history tells us that John was boiled alive and then exiled. Now, every time I watch a movie and they're like torturing people to get to the truth, I'm always like, yo, this will never be me, because you know how they'll be like, give me your pinky, and they'll pull out these scissors and they'll start to cut away. I'm like, listen, we don't have to cut off no pinkies. What do you want to know? I'll draw a map where they are. This is what you got to do. Go to 125th, turn. If you are not, don't ever commit a crime on me because I'm snitching immediately. You ain't cut my pinkies off. The men who wrote the Bible endured the fiercest of prosecution and persecution in order to present a message that they believed to be true, everything that they said about Jesus Christ was directly against their own interests. In the Gospel of John, in verse, chapter 20, verse 19, it says, When it was evening of the first day of the week, the disciples were gathered together with the doors locked because they feared the Jews. Jesus came, stood among them, and said, Peace be with you. This was after Jesus was crucified, and these guys were on the run. They were terrified because of the Jews. They were afraid that the same thing that happened to Jesus, being crucified, was going to happen to them. And then suddenly, this group of men who went from absolutely terrified, all of a sudden turned to this really bold and courageous group of people who are now willing to die for this claim that they're making. They made claims that were against their interests. Now, these men often had families, and none of them retracted their stories. I often think about what it would be, what, I, what would have to happen for me to be willing to let my kids grow up fatherless. It's definitely not a lie, and it's a lot of things that are true that I still don't know if I would actually do that. Why did these guys keep this story? Why did they keep telling us the same thing? Why was their story so consistent? Because they genuinely believe these things to be true. No one will die for a lie. Every lie that you and I have told in this past year or past week has all been to advantage you, not to disadvantage you. Chuck Colson was involved in Watergate, and that's a scandal during the Nixon administration where they were doing some spying, and then Nixon ended up having to resign from the presidential office. And Chuck Colson was involved in the scandal, and he actually founded a ministry called Prison Ministry because he went to prison as a result of his time uh, and his involvement in Watergate. And here's what he says about the Watergate scandal and giving us a better window into understanding how reliable this testimony is from these people. He says, I know the resurrection is a fact, and Watergate proved it to me. How? Because 12 men testified that they had seen Jesus raised from the dead. Then they proclaimed that truth for 40 years, never once denying it. Everyone was beaten, 
tortured, stoned, and put in prison. They would not have endured that if it weren't true. Watergate embroiled 12 of the, of the most powerful men in the world, and they couldn't keep alive for three weeks. You're telling me 12 apostles could keep alive for 40 years? Absolutely impossible. The people that wrote scripture had everything to lose, and they said it anyway. Now, the reliability and the credibility of the witnesses is one thing, and that in and of itself hopefully moves us down the field to understand the type of people that were writing scripture. But equally important to the credibility of the witnesses is the integrity of the documents, right? Like, are the documents that we have as the Bible, are they trustworthy? Are they actually reliable? And here's a couple of facts that I want to give you guys. And this is, um, if you already believe in the Bible, this is ammo for you when you go to the barbershop and someone starts talking crazy, Shawana, you could just be like, oh, for real? How about this right here? And you could um, tell them everything that you know about how reliable the Bible is. The New Testament has earlier, more numerous, and more reliable surviving manuscripts than any other book in antiquity. The number of New Testament manuscripts is overwhelming compared to other ancient books, which, ten, which typically range from 10 to 20 copies. The New Testament has about 5,800 surviving Greek manuscripts. The most of any other ancient book is Homer's Iliad with 643. Now, with all of these ancient manuscripts, there are zero disputes as to any doctrine that is presented in the Bible. So these 5,800 manuscripts are often called, referred to as a word called variants. And variants could mean grammatical differences in the way that arguments are presented. One variant will say, in the room there were 12 disciples. The other one will say, there were 12 disciples in the room. All of these 5,800 um, documents are all piecing together the same story, and they're all saying it consistently. Now, there are no other books, not even close, nothing else from ancient history, which even compares to how many books were, are, are compiled that we can crowdsource and determine that the claims that the Bible is ma are making are consistent throughout over and over and over again. There are no books that say Jesus wasn't, wasn't crucified. Not only that, but there are hundreds of other non-Christian authors from around those same periods of time who write about the same facts that the Bible presents. They didn't necessarily believe them, but they were consistent in saying, this is what Christianity is about. There's a historian named Josephus, another one named Tacitus. One was Jewish, the other one was Greek. They wrote about the claims that the Bible had, that these group of people believed that Jesus Christ of Nazareth was living and he was crucified. His followers claimed to have seen him uh, rise from the dead. All throughout ancient history, this message of Christianity has been completely consistent. Now, one of the arguments that I hear a lot is that the Bible was kind of like a game of telephone, that the more you play the game of telephone, the more people talk about, the more people relay the message, the less credible and reliable it gets. And that's a, that's a really dangerous argument because it reduces the lives of people to a game. Their life was not a game. They were not playing telephone. They were risking their life and their limb based on something that they believed to have seen, which is that Jesus Christ himself was alive, was crucified, and was resurrected, and they recorded the teachings and the life of Jesus. And it wasn't about them having fun in a room playing a little game. If we were to play telephone and someone was to put a gun or something on the table and say, if you don't get it all right, everybody's going to die. Pew, pew, everybody's going to die. Um, 
Some of you got it, some of you didn't. Um, I guarantee you your memory would improve. If it's just a game, then of course you would forget details or forget different things, but this was not a game that people were playing with. It was their actual lives, and they gave their lives to say these truths. Even more importantly about the integrity of the documents, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, different books of the Bible, they were written during the life of the people who, see, who saw Jesus and who were around for the events of the crucifixion. Now, Biggie died 23 years ago today, and I remember it like it was yesterday, and there is nobody in this room that can convince me that Biggie didn't die, that he didn't get shot. I remember when the news spread all around town about Biggie. Jesus was just as famous as Biggie Smalls. <laughs> That's probably the first time there's been a parallel to Jesus <laughs> and Biggie. If someone were to come to me and say, like, yo, Biggie never really existed, I'm like, yo, bro, I, I remember watching Yo! and TV raps when there was actual rap on, on TV, music videos, and listening to music and music videos. I remember all of the details about his life and his death, and you could not just pull that over my eyes because I lived through it. The Gospels were written during the, t- uh, the, the books of the Bible were written during the time that people were alive. And if you're trying to get a legend across on something. Legends took two to 300 years to develop before people started to write these stories. The biblical narratives were written during the lifetime of people, and the authors were saying, yo, check it out. In, Matthew, in Mark 15, 21, it talks about, there's a scripture, it says, they forced a man coming in from the country who was passing by to carry Jesus' cross. He was Simon of Cyrene, the father of Alexander and Rufus. What's Mark saying? Yo, Alexander and Rufus, you know them? Yo, ask them. Their father, Simon, carried Jesus' cross. They were not trying to put off a legend, a fairy tale on anyone. They were recording documents during the life of people who remembered everything that would have happened. Now, not only that, but the claims about Jesus' life and the claims from the New Testament, they include so many counterproductive details in there that it would make no sense for anyone to include any of these things. Some of these counterproductive details include the testimony of women. The Gospels say that the first people to see Jesus resurrected were women. In a society in which women were assigned such a low status that their testimony was not admissible as, as, as evidence, why would you say, why would you make up that detail that women were the first people to see Jesus alive if their testimony was completely dismissible? Not just that, but they include all of these details about Jesus that just would not help their cause if they're trying to make him out to be this wonderful leader, the Son of God. Some of these details include the crucifixion in and of itself. The way that Greeks and Romans would have understood the crucifixion was not the way that you and I feel during the communion song at Renaissance. It was a a way that common and poor and, and bad people died. To say that Jesus Christ was naked and beaten on the cross, that doesn't instill hope in anybody. It more so just kind of makes him out to be insignificant, just like another common criminal, the two men that he, like the two men he was crucified next to. Not only that, but Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane, and he's praying, Father, can I get past this? If it's your will, let, me, let, me, let this cup pass over me. And he says, nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. Why would you show the frailty of Jesus in these moments if you're trying to present him as the Son of God? Not just that, on the cross, Jesus says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
All of these things which would make you feel like, I don't know. I mean, it actually sounds like he's cursed by God, not God's one and only son. All of these counterproductive details, which a lot of people have read throughout the years and struggled to make sense of, uh, are included in the New Testament. And why do they do that? They include them because these details were true. Now, the biggest reason I've resisted it this long to say why I have a lot of faith in Scripture is the Jesus card. Jesus really, really, really loved Scripture. At every point in his life, he quoted, recited, taught, prayed through Scripture. If you want to find out what was inside of Jesus, when you pushed him to the, when you pushed him to the limit, what came out of him? Scripture. Now, I told this story a bunch of times. My sister-in-law, she is um, a very sweet lady, a very sweet woman. She's a mom. She drives her daughter to soccer practice. And you might make the mistake of thinking that Jasmine is sweet. <laughs> I, know, I know BX Jasmine, you know, from the South Bronx, that when it comes out of her, if you were to push her to the limit, BX Jazzy is coming out and you're not going to like what's going to happen at that, at that point. When you push her... That's when she starts taking her earrings off like, oh, word, what'd you say? <laughs> when you push Jesus, what came out of him? The thing that was most naturally inside of him, which is scripture. Over and over and over again in his life, at every moment in his life, like when he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's Psalm 22. In his darkest moments, in his best moments, Jesus quoted, recited, and taught scripture. And oftentimes I felt like, Lord, if I'm going to be your follower... Man, I just need to trust what you trust. There's a couple of things that Jesus um, has said throughout the New Testament that give me this confidence. Jesus believed that the Holy Spirit of God was in the writers of the Bible, and it wasn't just people writing stuff that they thought, but Jesus believed that they were carried along by the Holy Spirit to give us these words. In Mark 12, 35, Jesus says, while teaching in the temple, he asked, how can the scribes say that the Messiah is the son of David? David himself, the author of Psalms, says, by the Holy Spirit, the Lord declared to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. And Jesus is quoting a psalm. What does he say? David himself is saying this by the Holy Spirit. Jesus is saying that I believe that the writers of the Bible were being carried along by the Holy Spirit. Not only that, but Jesus believed that all of Scripture was going to be fulfilled by him, not be replaced by him. And he held it in extremely high regard. He says, don't think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly, I tell you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or one stroke of a letter will pass away from the law until all things are accomplished. That's a big promise. Lastly, Jesus believed that his life and his ministry was directed and preordained by Scripture when Jesus was about to be crucified, people were mocking him that he couldn't get out of the trouble that he was in. And this is what he says. Don't you think that I cannot call on my father and he will provide me here and now with more than 12 legions of angels? How then would the scriptures be fulfilled that say it must happen this way? Jesus is saying that these ancient documents written hundreds and sometimes thousands of years before his life, that these things were guided, guiding his actual life, and these things had to be fulfilled for him. And if you ever want to have an interesting exercise, Google uh, the prophecies in the Old Testament that were fulfilled in Jesus. It's a really exciting list. Now, here's a problem. 
in America in 2019, we're conditioned to look at Christianity through the lens of the political majority that votes in voting blocks. And the most natural thing to do with that is to throw away the baby with the bathwater. The apostles and the writers of the New Testament and the writers of Scripture were not a group of people who did some reprehensible things in the name of Jesus. They were the minority. They were the people being persecuted, not the persecutors. And I would hate for you to throw away Christianity and Scripture based on some really terrible representations that people are making today. I'll never forget this, man. I made the grave mistake of clicking on an article and then reading the comment section. Don't ever do that in your life. And there was a bunch of people who were, who were self-proclaimed Christians who were defending child separation at the border. And I'm like, yo, what planet do you live on where you're saying, yo, I follow Jesus, but yes, it's great to separate a two-year-old from their parents. The most natural reaction that people have is to take everything, hook, line, and sinker, and throw it all away. And trust me, I felt that temptation myself. But I don't want you throwing out the baby with the bathwater. You and I need to distinctly separate the, right, the, the, the beauty and the reliability of Scripture from how negatively we see people using and enacting it today. Now, earlier I said that there's no way that I'll be able to convince you that all things, you know, beyond a shadow of a doubt, that everything in Scripture is, is reliable. And I know that there's a lot of questions that I could never just completely answer from the stage, and you might have specific questions. So as a result, this Wednesday, we're having a Facebook Live event. And uh, young people, Facebook is a thing that your parents and grandparents <laughs> are on. And even for those of you who deleted your accounts, um, Sign up for another day and then leave again. But uh, this, this Wednesday at 8 p.m., we're going to be just answering whatever question you have about the Bible. Nothing is off topic. Nothing is out of bounds. Um, and, and please, you can email those questions in advance if you really want to make sure we answer it to info at renaissancenyc.com, or you can answer, ask it that day in the chat. There's a better chance of getting it answered if you send it out in advance so we know which ones to cover. Um, but I, I want you guys to really give us your honest, honest questions about the Bible. But I might not have all the answers, but here's the one answer that I, I kind of hinted at before. Man, Jesus really, really trusted the Bible. He trusted the Old Testament, and he promised us the New Testament. And there are some things to this day that I don't fully understand. There's some things that are above my pay grade to be able to explain and I will say this, this is part of what it means to be a follower of Jesus, not, a, um, <clears throat> not someone who walks, just simply walks alongside Jesus. To be a follower means, in a lot of ways, that we accept things from Jesus that are beyond our comprehension and are beyond our ability to control. And we do it because we trust Jesus more than we trust our own intellect. A lot of times people get into trouble because they say, I'm having a hard time following Jesus because of things that um, I'm struggling with believing uh, and, you know, things in their intellect that they're wrestling through. And it's not that you have a hard time trusting Jesus. In all cases, sometimes it is. In some cases, you and I have this way of putting our own ability to understand God equal to the simple instruction that Jesus gives us all, which is to follow him. Man, when Jesus first interacted with his earliest disciples, they didn't know anything that was about to go, go down. He simply went to them and said, follow me. And what Jesus does for us is he invites us on a journey to trust him. 
not necessarily us figuring out everything on the way. His disciples often would ask Jesus, yo, where are we going? I don't even know where we're going. That same thing that Jesus did to them, he does to us. He will not give you everything that you need or want to know, but he will give us everything that you and I need to follow him. Now, the way that you and I move from probability to certainty is that we actually put into place the things that Jesus is asking us to do. Now, I mentioned that the second time that life got really tough, the second time in my life where I really started to doubt scripture was when life hit. And when life hit, I was like, listen, I need more than an intellectual argument at this point. I need to know, are these actually your words for my life or should I find something else? There's a passage of scripture in Matthew where this dude John, John the Baptist, who Jesus says, nobody born of a woman is greater than John the Baptist. John the Baptist was a prophet, and he was known for um, just his commitment to truth. There was a king named Herod who was involved in some shady dealings. John the Baptist stood up to make sure he confronted Herod. Herod, as a result, threw John the Baptist in prison, and he knew that he was awaiting execution. John sent his disciples to Jesus to say this right here. Go ask Jesus, are you the one or should we look for another? When John was on the outside, he had one disposition. But when he was facing execution and a difficult, the most difficult point of his life, it started to raise questions in his own mind. Now, if that's you, if that's your story, if life has just dealt you a couple of bad cards and you're starting to question, you're in good company. But in these moments, we start to question whether or not Jesus is the one or should we look for another. We start to question whether or not we can actually trust in the reliability of Scripture. And here's what I found in my own life, and this is what I hope to be true of you as well. You and I can mentally get to the point of probability, but we have to commit ourselves in order to get to certainty. In order to know that Jesus' words can truly be trusted, you got to lean on them. You actually have to put your weight on them so that you can ascertain whether or not they're trustworthy. You and I can reason our way to probability, but we have to commit our way to certainty. So in the scripture, Jesus says, therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain fell, the rivers rose, the winds blew, and that pounded the house. Yet it did not collapse because its foundation was on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act on them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain fell, the rivers rose, the winds blew, and it pounded that house, and it collapsed. It collapsed with a great crash. Here's what Jesus is saying in the scripture. The only people who will know whether or not his words are trustworthy are the people who build their life on them. And then, and only then, after the rains come, after the rivers rise and after the winds blow, you'll be able to look back on your life and say, it actually worked. Now, this is not just true with the Bible. This is true with anything. You can only reason your way to probability, but you have to commit yourself to certainty. If you're in a position where you hire people at your job, you can read someone's resume 19 times. You can call every last one of their references. You can evaluate their previous work or, or, or work sample that they've ever done. And the only way you're going to know if this person is truly a good hire is if you hire them. And then you'll realize whether they are, or in a lot of cases, they are not a good employee to, to have hired. This is with everything in life. 
You and I can reason our way to probability, but we have to commit our way to certainty. And this is what Jesus is asking for people to do. Now, this is specifically for those of us in the room who are Christians. Today, I am significantly less interested in your amens and much more interested in your actions. And uh, I am significantly less interested in your amens and uh, what, you're, what you're saying and more about your actions. Jesus is not calling for you to mentally agree. He's calling for you to actually build your life on the rock. Do you know when you could actually see how trustworthy Jesus' words are? Like when Jesus says, man, a lot of people will tell you that if your enemy does something to you, repay them with evil. I'm not saying that. For you, for your enemies, pray for them. You will never know the power of that until you actually do that. There are, there are people that have crossed my path in life where I would rather not deal with them again. We've had some bad interactions, and I've had the opportunity, I'll say it like that, I've had the opportunity to pray for them. And in these moments, I was like, this is the stupidest thing in the world. Why would I pray for them? And they're talking reckless. They're not even, like, apologetic, and they're continuing to talk crazy. In those moments where I would pray for them, it did something to me. It actually helped me understand what grace was. It helped me understand that, Lord, I've been your enemy for so long. I've been ungrateful for all the things you've given me, and yet you gave them to me. How then could I resist grace from someone who needs it the same way I did? And in praying for my enemies, oftentimes the situation didn't change, but you know what did change? I did. And I got to see the weight and the power of those words. I don't want you to be an intellectual Christian, for those of you in the room who are Christians. I want you to take the words that Jesus has, and I want you to build your life on them. They are a firm foundation. Now, in just a few moments, we're going to take communion. And communion is a period uh, that we try to have in service where we intentionally focus our attention on Jesus. And there's a scripture where Jesus tells us to remember him. Now, in communion there is an element to it that is meant to awaken more than our intellect. It's meant to awaken our souls and our bodies, and it's a physical re representation of Jesus that we're meant to take in physically. Here's what I want you to take in today, and this is especially true for anyone who came in today with guilt, self-loathing, beating yourself up about anything. There's a scripture in the Psalms that says, as far as the east is from the west, so far you have removed my sins from me. When you come today to take communion, I want you to come thanking God that as far as the east is from the west, that's how far, because of what Christ has done on the cross, God has removed your sins from you. And it comes by placing our faith in Christ, not by what you have done. These are God's words to us that are trustworthy. These are God's words to us that are reliable. These are God's words to us that are meant to shape our lives. Heavenly Father, thank you for your words to us. Help us to truly trust in the words that you're saying. And God, more importantly, God, give us the courage to take steps of faith towards you, to build our lives on you. And God, help us to find how reliable you and your words truly are. God, I pray for whoever's in this room today that's going to make a commitment today. They're going to make a change in their life today for the first time in a long time. And God, I just thank you right now in advance for showing yourself faithful to them. We ask this in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.